be seated. Well, welcome, welcome to Mercy House. Uh, if you are elementary age kid, it's time to go to the class, which is on the my left side today, uh, because we're still doing extreme MH Kids makeover downstairs, uh, but it's looking awesome. So the kids will be right next door. So we continue in Hebrews 13. Go ahead and grab a Bible off the floor, open up your phone, go to Hebrews 13. That's going to be a big help to you if you follow along. We've been saying, we've called this faith in practice, and so we've been saying that um, Hebrews communicates both the faith that we're supposed to believe, the faith uh, that saves us, right, the belief in the gospel, uh, but then also the practice, the living out of the implications of that gospel. And the beginning of the chapter of ch Hebrews chapter 13 really talks about the shaping, how the gospel shapes us. And so we learn that gospel-shaped people love the vulnerable. We learn that gospel-shaped people honor marriage. Uh, we learn that gospel-shaped people don't love money. We learn that gospel-shaped people imitate their leaders. So those are the first few sermons. You want to go back, listen to those. They're uh, on SoundCloud. You can search SoundCloud. You can go to our website as well. Then we spent a couple of uh, sermons back on the topic of Jesus saving us, which is what most of the book of Hebrews is about. And we learned about the immutability of Jesus, the, how he is unchangeable, right? And this is why our salvation is unchangeable, is because he's unchangeable. If we place our faith uh, in him, that will not change. Uh, we also learned about that ongoing grace that strengthens us, that our hearts are strengthened, right? So then that, that kind of brought us back into this idea of being saved. And then this next section really combines both the saving and the shaping, which is part of why we called it what we did, this faith and practice idea. And this may be one of the most powerful truths for our particular day, what we're going to look at today. Because it deals with one of our, our greatest fears and our greatest temptations. Uh, it's one of our greatest fears. One of our greatest fears is that we will be alone. That we will be rejected. That we won't be uh, accepted by, by those around us. And because of that, that sets up a whole bunch of temptations. To do things that we know are over and against God in order to remain accepted by those around us. Now, this is a deep God-given desire, right, to be accepted, to be loved, to be both truly known and truly loved. That, that's a deep-seated desire in our hearts. And again, it's given to us by God to be truly known and, at the same time, truly loved. But like every good thing, we humans who have been affected by sin, we twist the good thing and we turn it into a God thing. And we bow down and we worship at the altar of acceptance. Almost all of advertising speaks to this deep-seated need. Right? If you use this product or service, you're going to be accepted or acceptable, and maybe that's you're going to be accepted or acceptable to the opposite sex or to friends. Uh, 
this, this little video here. We're having trouble with sound, but uh, uh, this is back from 1971. So this is not a new thing. This is an old Coke uh, video. And the song lyrics, you may know them because it's uh, pretty recognizable. It says, I, I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. That's the real thing. What the world wants today is the real thing. And this video shows the whole world coming together around brown colored water made of corn syrup. But, the, but there's this longing that Coke has been tapping into and most advertisers are tapping into whether it's you know the cold beer with your friends or the perfume that gets the guy or you know you your hair club for men that gets the girl we're looking for that acceptance right and it's tapping into this deep-seated longing for for this acceptance from other people I, I remember probably the first time this kind of thing this fear crept into my own heart was in middle school that I can remember okay it's a long time ago when I was in middle school but um, my my mom had always bought my tennis shoes from Montgomery Ward. Now, most of you don't know Montgomery Ward because it no longer exists, thank God. But it's kind of like Sears, except it was worse. Okay? And Montgomery Ward had a special line of shoes known as Zips. And my mom always bought me Zips for school. And I didn't care. I was like, cool, Zips, I don't care. And then middle school came around, and everyone started wearing Nikes, right? Look at these beauties. I mean, so you got zips, you got Nike. I mean, there's just no comparison, really. I mean, is there? But my mom's argument was, I could buy these Nikes for $21. Or I could buy two pairs of zips for 15 And then... Robert, when you get your feet wet, when you're at school or you're running around, you've got a second pair. And while one's drying out, the other can be worn. That was my mom, right? And as soon as I got some money in my hand, I went and bought me a pair of $21 Nikes. Right? Why? Because they're that much better? No. Because everyone else had $21 Nikes. $21 was a lot of money back then, okay? So, um, and it, it, it was this deep-seated fear that literally I, I felt it tangibly as I'm walking up to the, the building and I'm wearing zips, right? And I'm wanting to be accepted. And I'm believing that if I buy a particular product that I will be accepted. So this is a deep-seated thing. I don't think it's just my problem. I think it's every human being's problem. And again, it's a, it's a, it's a God-given desire and twisted into something that is sinful. So we want to answer a couple of questions, and I think this text does this. How does the gospel save us from that idol? And then secondly, how does the gospel shape us once we've been saved from that idol? Okay? So the idol of, of acceptance by others. So let's, I'm going to read the scripture again, think about it in those terms, and I think it may help. Get, get us off the ground here. Hebrews 13, 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So let's, let's answer the first question. How does the gospel save us? Now, before we can really understand that, we've got to understand what some of these images um, mean. Because it's steeped in Old Testament. Now, the, the original hearers of the book of Hebrews, they knew their Old Testament backwards and forwards. And it's very obvious when you read Hebrews. Because there's a lot of stuff in there. You're like, Melchizedek, what is that? Right? And, the, and the readers originally, they knew it. They knew their, their Old Testament backwards and forwards. And here you have these really quick allusions to a lot of Old Testament stuff that we may or may not really understand what it means. So he talks about an altar, a tent, animal sacrifices that cannot be eaten, uh, burning animal sacrifices outside the camp. So what's this altar? So the altar he's talking about is the altar either in the tabernacle or the temple. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about the tabernacle. This was the portable temple that the people of God had out in the desert wanderings. And you can see when there's, there's an entrance there. And at the entrance of the gate is where the worshiper would come and the priest would meet them. Uh, but they couldn't go in there. Only priests could go in there. right? And, and so you can, in the, in the second part, if you can see that, you can see some smoke rising up in the, in, in the little, little part there. And that's the altar. And so what would happen is you would typically, you'd bring your animal that you were going to offer up for a sin offering and you bring it to the, the gate and the priest would meet you there and you would lay your hands on the head of that animal and that would signify you're transferring your sin and uncleanness to the unblemished clean animal. And then you would slit the throat of the animal, you'd bleed the animal and the, and the priest would take the blood of the animal and would sprinkle it on the altar that was burning all the time. And that was to atone for your sin. And then you would eat the, the, the meat of the animal with the priest. And it was a, a way to enjoy fellowship with God and one another. And so you were basically joining, uh, enjoying the new acceptance that you now had with God and others that had just been purchased through the death of that animal. Now, there was one particular day where a very special sacrifice was offered for the entire nation. And that was the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And you can read about it in Leviticus 16 if you want to go back and look at the details. But this only happened once a year. And the whole nation of Israel would, would gather outside the, the front gate there. And the high priest would come out with two goats. And so goat number one would be brought there to, to, the, to the center. And the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat. Signifying the sin of the nation. Not just the high priest, but the nation that was being transferred to the goat, right? And so the guilt and the uncleanness, all of that is, is transferred to the goat. And the unblemished nature, the, the, un, the, the cleanness, the, the guilt-freeness of the goat transfers to Israel. And then they would kill the goat, bleed the goat, take the blood of the goat, not, not to the altar necessarily. I mean, they, they, they did some of the blood on the altar and other pieces, but they, he would eventually get inside the Holy of Holies. Like, yeah. So that the little tent within inside those walls was this holy of holies. So you had the, the holy place and then the most holy place in the far back. And then the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. And then on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the thing called the Mercy Seat. 
and he would take the blood from goat number one and he would sprinkle that on top of the mercy seat. And this was to atone for the sins of the entire nation of Israel. Now, the, the high priest went in there with bells on his robe so that they could hear if he was still alive when he went in there. Because if God did not accept that sacrifice, he could die. Not only that, but extra biblical literature tells us that they tied a rope onto his leg that in case he did die, they could drag him out. And so the whole nation of Israel is waiting to see if God will accept the sacrifice. And so the blood is, is sprinkled on top of the mercy seat, and then the high priest comes out. And I, I'm thinking it's just like a sigh of relief when he pops his head out of the gate and sees the whole nation of Israel, and they're like, "Woo! God has accepted the sacrifice for our nation. So that goat number one acts as a propitiation. There's your big theological word for sin. That means he's taken the place of the sinner, of sinful Israel, and he's absorbed the punishment deserved by sinful Israel. Now, goat number two is then brought out, and I'm sure goat number two is a little nervous because he knows what happened to goat number one, but it goes a little bit better for him, a little bit. And so the same kind of thing happens where the high priest puts, the hand, puts his hand on the head of goat number two, signifying the transference of sin and uncleanness to goat number two, and then they run goat number two out into the wilderness, outside the camp, into the desert. They actually designate a, a, one of the priests to go with the goat to make sure the goat does not come back. We've done this with some squirrels here that we've caught, right? And we designate someone to go take that squirrel and take it far away, right? And don't let that squirrel come back to this, this building. And, and so the idea is that this goat is an uh, expiation. So, so what expiation is, is a cleansing from the uncleanness that the sin left be uh, behind. So goat number one takes care of the guilt, but then you still have the leftover uncleanness. And that needs to be expunged. It needs to be expiated, washed, clean. And so, so now goat number two takes care of that. And then the entire nation of Israel eats a fellowship meal before the face of God and with one another, enjoying the newly purchased acceptance that they've been given. So those, those are the things that are being alluded to in, in this text. Again, w well known by uh, the, the first readers of the book of Hebrews. And this is hopefully sounding a bit familiar to you if you're a Christian. But this is pointing forward to Christ. The sacrifice that Christ makes on the cross that makes an atonement for our sins, it both takes care of our guilt. It's a propitiation. It also cleanses us from the uncleanness left behind. And so it's an expiation as well. And this is given as a free gift. We receive it by grace, through faith. It's not free because it's cheap, though. Just like the Day of Atonement had, had to be paid for the life, uh, really two lives of, of two goats. But those weren't really taking care of sin. Those were pointing forward to the death that would take care of the sin 1,500 years after Moses. So listen again to what the writer of Hebrews is saying there, verse 12 of Hebrews 13. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now, the reason we know this is, this is about the Day of Atonement is, is because 
they didn't eat goat number one after it had been sacrificed, like you would usually with a sin offering. You'd usually eat what was left over as a, as a fellowship meal with God, but not the Day of Atonement. In the Day of Atonement, you would take that goat outside of the camp, outside of the city, and you would burn that goat. And the idea is that that goat has become so unclean and so guilty because of sin that it now has to be taken away from the people and it has to be destroyed completely outside the camp. And what he's pointing to is, is that this, this, is, this is Jesus. This is Jesus who's, who's absorbing the guilt and the shame of sin so much so that he has to be killed. And he's killed outside of the camp. This, this, this is how he saves us from sin, all sin, including the sin of idolizing what other people think about us over and against God. This was the only way we could be saved from our sin, is if it was atoned for by Jesus' death. This is the only way that we could be, that our guilt could be dealt with and the shame and the uncleanness that comes from having sinned and being sinned against even. There's only one way, and that would be the death of Christ on the cross. And so Jesus, who should have been the ultimate insider, <laughs> takes on sin and shame and becomes the ultimate outsider. And the cross itself was, was designed by the Romans to be shame-filled. It was to shame and disgrace the person being crucified to the nth degree so that it would discourage anyone else from committing the same crime as the person being crucified. And so they were stripped naked, they were mocked, they were spit on, they, they were uh, absolutely shamed and disgraced. And the divine son of God that should have been the ultimate insider literally was the ultimate outsider. But not only that, he became a cosmic outsider. We know that because of sin, he, he, he was not just rejected by human beings, but rejected by God the Father. He cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's being pushed out, even cosmically, outside the camp. This idea of Jesus saving us through his death, it's throughout the book of Hebrews. Here's just one example, Hebrews 10, 11 and 12 Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is the good news. No more goats have to be slaughtered. No more sacrifices at altars. There's been a once-for-all sacrifice for sin, that both offers propitiation and expiation, and when we receive that grace by faith, we're accepted by God, and that was bought and paid for us by Jesus allowing himself to become utterly unacceptable, and so the fact that we've been saved by that should also shape the way we interact with our world. So this is just verse 13, right? He says, therefore, right? So he's saying, 
in light of that salvation that has been given to us, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. So in light of that great salvation that required Jesus to go from the ultimate insider to the ultimate outsider, the writer of Hebrews is saying, this is what I want you to do. I want you to bear reproach. Now, you're not bearing reproach so you can save yourself. Only Jesus saves. His bearing of reproach offers up salvation. But it, it, it does shape us. It shapes our hearts in such a way that we are willing to bear reproach. Now, what is reproach? Some other Bible translations might help us to understand what reproach is, New, uh, New International Version. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace. That's probably a word that we would use more readily than reproach, being disgraced. Amplified Bible says, let us go to him outside the camp bearing his Contempt, we might use that word as well, and then kind of gives us some other options, the disgrace and shame that he had to suffer. The message, which is a paraphrase, kind of a commentary that I look at sometimes. So let's go outside where Jesus is, where the action is, not trying to be privileged insiders, but taking our share in the abuse of Jesus. Now, now why would the Bible command us as Christians to willingly embrace Disgrace, contempt, shame, and abuse. Well, because sometimes, in order to remain faithful to both what we believe and how we practice what we believe, we're going to experience disgrace and contempt. It's part of what we signed up for when we became a disciple of Jesus. There's going to be a day, right? There's going to come, come this day or this week or this month, or and, and we are... In, in our context, this is the norm. To be a Christian who believes the Bible, that believes all that bloody cross stuff that I just spent you know, 15 minutes explaining. To believe that, and, and not just to believe that for you personally, or maybe for your little tribe personally, but to believe that for every nation, tribe, and tongue. If, for you to do that causes you to experience contempt from others. Just be honest. Disgrace. Reproach. In order to be faithful to that belief, both how that, what we believe and how that shapes our lives, there's, there are days when we have to bear up under reproach, which is part of what we signed up for. The original hearers of this letter were struggling with this. So, so don't feel bad if you're struggling with this. And of course we are. Right? This deep need that everyone accepts us and like us. We, but this, this is part of being a human being. And the Hebrew people that, that, that received this letter, they, they're no different. They were struggling. Listen to this in also chapter 10. The writer says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to, to reproach. There's that word again. And afflictions sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. These Christians were being attacked. They were being shamed publicly. They, 
They were being incarcerated. I mean, they had it much worse than we have it. We've got to admit that. And this was coming from their fellow Jews. This was coming from friends and family who were trying to shame them and shout them down and even attack them so they would not continue to believe in Jesus and allow Jesus to shape their lives. And he says when they were first enlightened, that means when, when they were new Christians, some of you, if you've been a Christian for a while, you may look, think back and think, wow, that was such a honeymoon period. I was so fired up about Jesus. I, I, didn't, I didn't care what people thought about it. I just want to tell everybody. And didn't care about the embarrassment or the, or the disgrace. And, and th- this must have been what these Hebrew Christians were feeling when they first became Christians. Very excited about it. Didn't care all that much about how they were being shamed or disgraced. But then over time, it became a wearying thing. And they were struggling to bear up under the reproach. And again, why? This is, this is one of our deepest fears that we're not going to be accepted or loved or belong or be an insider, it drives so much of our lives. It drives what we say and what we don't say. It's, it drives what we wear and what we don't wear. It drives what we, we buy and what we don't buy. It, it, it drives what we post on social media and what we don't post on social media. And we post something and we look and see who, do we get any likes? Did people, did they approve of that? And then, and then we we look at who's, who liked it. What does that say about what I posted and how people are feeling about it? We look, who didn't like it? And what does that say about what I posted and how people are feeling about it? And we curate our image because we want to be accepted. It's exhausting. And it's sin. It's sin. Again, it's, it's, this is common to human beings, common to me. As a pastor, I want to be liked. I want people to think well of me. And some days when, when I need to say hard truth to someone, I, I don't want to say hard truth to them because I don't want them to not like me. Or I think if I say hard truth to them, then they're going to talk to five other people and then they're not going to like me either. And then it's just going to spread and I think I'll just not say anything. Right? And again, it's one thing for me to say hard truth from the platform because that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what a good pastor does, but to say hard truth to people directly, that's a whole different thing. So I know this fear too. I know the temptation to give in to that fear and to not instead have great faith. So who are your insiders? Who are those people that you're willing to say and not say things because you don't want to risk the reproach that they're going to put on you? Is it family? Is it friends? Is it neighbors? Is it co-workers? Or even acquaintances? Acquaintances that you're hoping perhaps could turn into friends or acquaintances that you're hoping could actually help you with something. Maybe they've got some social capital you'd like to exploit and you just don't want to make them mad and so you just kind of keep the whole Christian thing on the down low because I don't want them to not give me what I want, right? There's a lot of layers to this. Who are your insiders? Who are your insiders? Are you, you know, the, the worst part of this, right, is 
that we, we would hold back on gospel truth from people because we don't want to experience their reproach. The very truth that is their only saving hope. But we, we actually value not having to be under reproach more than we value them having the opportunity to experience the saving grace of the gospel. Now Christ, obviously, he saved us from that. So if you feel convicted for this sin, I don't want you to just kind of go down into a hole. And go, yeah, I'm a horrible Christian. No, know that expiation and propitiation have been offered for this sin and all the other ones. And confess it to him. Confess it to him. Be strengthened by grace. We heard last week. Be strengthened. That's part of the strengthening as you're being, you're experiencing forgiveness. It's been given to you, paid for by Christ on the cross. So confess that and, and, and allow yourself to be freed from that sin. But again, Christ then wants to shape you. He doesn't just want to have you forgiven of that sin. He wants that to actually transform your life such that you're, you're shaped by the gospel as well. And there's two truths in here that really help shape us in this area of being fearful about people's acceptance. So the first truth, consider Jesus's willingness to bear reproach on our behalf way before he asks us to do it for him. Consider Jesus's willingness to bear reproach on our behalf way before he asks us to do this. That's what he means when he says, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. He's already endured reproach. The ultimate insider became the ultimate outsider, even cosmically so, so that we could be saved from all sin, including the sin of, of, of valuing the opinions of others over and against God. It's a pretty serious sin. And Jesus endured the reproach that he did not deserve. And so as we consider that, that should shape us. To cause our hearts to, to desire to bear up under reproach that's shutting us up and not causing us to, to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. And again, Jesus, he didn't deserve this, right? He's God. He's perfect. He's holy. He's powerful. And yet, he allowed himself to experience the shame and the reproach of the cross. He was worthy to be praised and thanked and adored and instead he put himself in a place of being absolutely mocked and shamed. And he did it he did it for us. He did it for us who were filled with guilt and shame and could not get ourselves out of it. No amount of problem solving could fix the guilt and the shame because we're the problem. And Jesus knew that, and out of his love for us, he allowed himself, the perfect, holy one, certainly doesn't deserve reproach, to experience reproach. Let that truth just sink down in your heart to give you the strength to bear up under the reproach required of us as gospel-witnessing Christians. The second truth to consider is the impermanence of this world and the permanence of the world to come. 
the impermanence of this world and the permanence of the world to come. This is what he means in Hebrews 13, 14, for here we have no lasting city, that's impermanent, but we seek the city that is to come, that's the permanent one, right? This city, we might call it the city of man, it's, it's not going to be around forever. It's going to go by the wayside. So why am I altering my words to accommodate the city of man? It's not going to be around forever. Why am I altering my schedule to accommodate the city of man when it's not going to be around forever? Why am I altering the way I spend my money and my time and imbibe entertainment? Or Why am I altering those things for the city of man when that city's not going to be around for very long? You see it? It's impermanent, and yet we're, we're, we're putting everything into this, this city of man that's, that will be gone soon. Instead, we, we ought to be looking forward to the city of God, the city that's permanent, the city that's eternal, the, the city that our life now actually echoes into. The things that we do now have implications for the city of God. It's not like, oh, the city of God's coming. I'm going to kick back. I'm going to wait for the city of God. Awesome. No. What, what we do now, our demonstration and our proclamation of the gospel being the primary thing that makes a difference such that it echoes into the city of God. And so as we're thinking about the permanent city of God, it's causing us to alter our words to accommodate that city, to alter our schedules to accommodate that city that is to come, to, to alter the way we spend our money and our time and, 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 and all, the, all the decisions that we make. We want to accommodate not the city of man, but the city of God that is permanent. It is eternal. When Jesus is, is, is talking about persecution and encouraging his disciples to, to bear up under persecution. Listen to, listen to uh, what he says in Matthew 5, verse 10. He says, uh, blessed are the, oh, no, verse 12, Re rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, okay, city of God, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see the mentality he's trying to build into his, his disciples? He's like, okay, you're, you're being persecuted, shame, disgrace. Okay, yeah, but there's reward in the city of God that's to come. Right? Uh, he continues or, or a couple of verses before there. He says this, blessed are those who are persecuted. <laughs> what? Blessed are or happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you or persecute you or utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, he's not talking about some kind of shallow, fun-loving, giggly happiness type stuff, but he's talking about this deep-seated joy in, in Christ that, that, that happens when you bear up under disgrace and under reproach and under persecution. The first time we really see this happen in the Christian church is in Acts chapter 5. Verse 40, the apostles are being brought in to be questioned, or a couple of them. Uh, and it says, when they called in the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, 
rejoicing. <laughs> what? Rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the, that, that the Christ is Jesus. Now, it's counterintuitive, right? You've just been beaten and shamed and, and threatened to shut up about Jesus. And instead, they bear up under that. They give a, a gospel witness in that uh, time of trial, and then they leave, and they're rejoicing, right? It, it, it sounds, it, it's definitely counterintuitive. But what's happening is they're honoring Christ, and as they do that, the Holy Spirit shows up in power, and, and they grow spiritually. This is, this is what happens when we bear up under reproach. Even in this world, right? We're, we're growing in gospel grace. I mean, what if they would have cowered? What if Peter and John, when they were being questioned, they said, oh, you know, no, no, you're right. There's no resurrection. You're right. Sorry. So, I'm, so, I'm so sorry. That, that, no, no, Jesus is not for everyone. I mean, some people. He's for some people. We're so sorry. Please don't beat us. Please don't question us. We promise we'll never witness again. Have a nice day. What, what would have happened then? Would they have left and then been, wow, let's go get them. Let's go get on the mission. <laughs> not at all. Their, their value of Jesus, their value of the gospel, it would have been diminished. The work of the Spirit in their lives would have been squelched. It doesn't mean that they weren't a Christian at that point. But I'm telling you, the maturity would not have increased. Their experience of who Jesus is and their value of the gospel not increased. The work of the Spirit in their lives not increased. Same thing happens to us. When we cower, the value of the gospel goes down in our hearts doesn't mean it's not true, but it goes down in our hearts. The work of the Spirit, it, 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 it's squelched. And then, then the opposite, when we, when we do, we, we give a witness. And we're honest with those around us about the gospel. Now, I'm not talking about be, being a jerk for Jesus, okay? There, there's definitely an inappropriate way to wear your Christianity. And Christians are, they're professional at this, all right? And so they, they, can, they can be... So weird and, and so uh, not contextual in the way that they're communicating. But I think for a lot of us, that's not our problem. Our problem is we're cowering. We're contextualizing so much. People don't even know we're a Christian. They just think we're a religious person. We're a church person. We're just one of the, the religions that's out there. And it, and it, it makes no difference in the, in the person, person's life. They just think, oh, so-and-so's a nice person. And they're religious. That's nice. How many times I've heard that in Amherst? Oh, you're a pastor. That's nice. That doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't lead to anyone being saved. <laughs> Just being nice. So, so we, we, we want to bear up under the reproach. And it, it actually, Jesus is telling us in Matthew 5, it's a blessing when you're persecuted. It's a blessing when you experience disgrace. Those of you that have experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. When you do give a word of witness to someone, when you, you are true and, and genuine and authentic about what you believe before others, you, 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 you mature, you value the gospel. You walk away not feeling discouraged. You, you walk away feeling, wow, I really believe this stuff. And it is true. And I do love it. And, and the Spirit is at work in me. And then you're that much more likely to, to be honest and genuine in the next interaction.
So how do we apply this? Well, if you're not a Christian, welcome home. Welcome home. That, that acceptance that you've been longing for to be truly known and truly loved, you found it. And it's, it's in this gospel that we're talking about today. That Christ has, has died in your place to forgive you of sin and to, to cleanse you from sin. And it's grace. Like, you can't do anything to deserve it or earn it. You don't go on a one-year probation to be a really good girl, a good boy, and then they say, okay, now you're a Christian. No, you receive it by grace, through faith. It's free. And it's the absolute unconditional acceptance that you, you are longing for. And you may have looked for it in romantic relationships or friendships or, or, or wearing Nikes or, or whatever. But I'm telling you, Jesus is where that need is going to be met, that deep-seated need. And again, it's a God-given need, and only God can fill it. For, for those of us that, that, that are, are Christians, we need to be reminded of that reality. We're home. We're accepted by the one who really matters, the God of heaven. That's whose acceptance we need more than anything else. Our, our worst fear should have been that we weren't accepted by him because of our sin. And if we've become a Christian, that thought came into our mind and we went, oh, it's worse than I thought. My sin separates me from God and I'm not accepted by him, but I can be by grace through faith in the gospel, right? And so being reminded of that, we are truly known and we're truly loved by God and it's by grace not because we wear a certain thing or we, we say a certain thing it, we're loved and that's absolute unconditional acceptance but now that now that I'm an insider I'm an insider with God and even in my community with with my brothers and sisters in Christ how is that now shaping me with a boldness to go out and commend that good news to other people? Who are my insiders that I will not allow them to, to feel contempt toward me? And I'll say what I need to say or I won't say what I don't want to need to say in order to make sure I don't feel their contempt. Where am I compromising? Is it, a, is it family members? Is it friends? Is it co-workers? Is it neighbors? I think even among other Christians sometimes. I think this is one of the temptations among other Christians. We're tempted to be lukewarm because we don't want to appear weird. And so we may have a prompting by the Spirit to say, let's pray together or ask a, a question that's a deeper level than the weather and the Red Sox. But then we, but we halt, we hesitate. Even though we're among Christians, we go, oh, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that woman. Because they'll think, oh, you're being so super spiritual. Now, I'm a pastor, so they just know it. They just know coming in, he's going to be super spiritual because he's the pastor. But when a Christian who is, is not a vocational minister does this, it's powerful. It's powerful. And, and I feel like people are tempted even among Christians, to sort of damp down 
what they feel compelled to do and say for the glory of God and for the good of those that they're in the conversation with. And then we're also tempted, obviously, to not be honest and genuine with people who are not Christians who are in our, in our lives. Right? We're tempted to hold back the full gospel. We might say, oh, we go to church, which is good. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not knocking that. I think you should be, be genuine about your schedule. and just, yeah, Oh, yeah, what'd you do Sunday? Well, I was at church. And half the time somebody says, what, 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 was it, what was it about? What do you say? Oh, it was about uh, be, a, be a good person and be really nice. Is that what you say? I say, well, actually, our, our church kind of has the same sermon every week. It's about the gospel. It's about Jesus. And here's what Jesus did for us. I don't know, would you be interested in talking about that more? That would be a better than, oh, be nice. You know, that, that's not helping anyone. Right? And again, I describe that because uh, that's what I mean by an appropriate way to give gospel witness, you know? Not walk up to your friend and like shove a gospel tract into their hand and go, read this, you know? Like, that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just being honest and genuine, but being forthright about the gospel. And again, I, I, I know that, that feeling when that opportunity presents itself and you think, I don't want to go full out in this conversation because I don't want them to think I'm weird. That's, that's what this passage is talking about. Reproach, disgrace, shame. I had, had a couple guys in our basement a lot that were working on a, a, putting a bathroom into our basement. And I was like, I got a captive audience right here. This is, this is awesome. And I'm, I'm able to talk to these guys. And, and they know I'm a pastor and there's questions back and forth. And, and, but each time I had the opportunity there was this little hesitation. Do I want to go there? And then when I did go there, it was awesome. And I walked away going, man, I'm so glad I went there. But every time an opportunity presented itself, there was like this wall. Like, don't do that. Don't say that. Because that's going to make them think you're weird. And I am weird. I mean, that's, that's, everybody knows that. Right? And so at the, at, at, at the end of it, I, even I got a book for one of them, and I've got this book. I mean, I've ordered this thing on Amazon for the express reason to give it to this person. And the book is on my desk, and he's outside working on something, and, and I know this is the last day, and I'm thinking, I gotta give him this book. And again, something inside me is like, no, don't do it. It's one thing to talk about Jesus, but to give him a book, that's weird, right? And I just, I just like, no, don't do that. Get over it, come on. Grab the book, go outside. Hey, I got this book for you, here's why. And I'd love to meet with you and talk with you. And I did it. Right? Now, he didn't want to meet and talk, but hey, it's all good. He still talks to me. Right? I see him every once in a while. And then the, the other guy, it, 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 you know, some conversations, not as many because he wasn't in the basement as much, but I wanted to invite him to church because he knew, you know, we had talked some about church and things like that. And I, I was, you know, wanting to text him like, hey, we'd love to. And it was like, oh, I don't want to do this. Right. And he totally rejected me. He's just like, didn't even, he didn't even answer the text, really. He just said something else in, a, in reply. Didn't even mention the church thing, right? But who cares? I'm still here. I'm still fine. I've seen the guy a couple of times more. We have a great conversation. It's no big deal. But there's just that, that obstacle, that fear of the acceptance of human beings, even mere acquaintances. Repent. Repent from that. Right? We, we are reminded of 
the acceptance that we have and the reproach that Jesus had to experience every time we come to this table. Think about this table, right? We come to this table, we're reminded of the night before Jesus is going to die on the cross. And what is he doing? He, he's saying to his disciples, welcome home. Welcome home. One of the most powerful ways to say that in the ancient world was to eat a meal together. That's, that's why they're eating a meal together, in part. It's, it's to say, you're accepted, Peter, who's going to deny me. John Mark, who's going to be so afraid as you run away that, that you're going to run out of your clothes. You know, <laughs> I mean, these guys are going to completely let Jesus down. And he, he takes bread and he breaks it and he gives it to these folks. And he, he says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, I, I'm going to pay a price so that sinners like you who sin in all kinds of ways, including making the acceptance of others an idol, forgiven. So forgiven that you can come back into fellowship with God and for one another. And again, it's not cheap. It is free, but it's not cheap. And we're reminded of that as he takes the cup and he blesses it. And he gives it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant. He's describing a, a community that's been created because of what he's going to do on the cross the next day. A new covenant in my blood. It's going to be a high price. Shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's letting them know before they've done anything right or not right, you're forgiven. It's by grace. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. This is partly why we do this every week, is, is we're being reminded as we come to the table, we're home. We're already home. We don't have to do something to get home. When we accept Christ by grace through faith, we're home. And we're right with God, and we're right with other brothers and sisters in, in Christ. So the very next day, what is he doing? He's on the cross. He's, he's paying the payment that's necessary for what this symbolizes and actually means something. And again, as I said before, it's not just Jesus going outside of the walls of Jerusalem or being put up on a cross that's a symbol of, of shame, which even that would be more than he should do, but, but it's even cosmic. He's, he's hanging on the cross saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's been put... As far outside the camp as you could possibly be placed. Rejected. Full of guilt and shame. Because he's absorbing our guilt and shame into himself. And being placed outside the camp. So that we can be brought home. So we can be brought near. And so based on that grace. Based on that acceptance as a free gift. Let us feel the freedom to confess our sins, including sins of placing acceptance of others over acceptance from God. I, I know this is a problem. It's a problem for me. It's a problem for our congregation. It's a problem, uh, especially, I think, for, for our community members. One of the things that I watch is who goes through those waters of baptism every semester? Who's becoming a Christian? Who, who is going from darkness to light? You know who it is? It's students. It's college students, and that's awesome. That is awesome. I, I'm, I'm pumped about that. I'm excited about that. And it's miraculous, right? I mean, the millennial generation is the most unchurched generation that America has ever seen, ever. 
and we're seeing millennials come to faith in Christ, profess their faith in, in Christ, join the church. I mean, come on. This is miraculous. It's amazing. But what about those in our towns? Where are they? Why, why aren't they coming to faith in Christ in this church? Why, why aren't they going through the waters of baptism? I, I have to think, as, as a pastor, it, it's one of two reasons. Either one, people in the community, uh, the community members in, in this church, they're just apathetic about those who are without Christ. They just don't care. You don't want to talk about the gospel because you don't really care. You like to go to your church and do your thing. Or you're fearful about reproach. Because I think if, most, if more of us were being honest and genuine about the truths of the gospel to people around us, that people would come to faith in Christ and we'd see some of them go through the water. So I definitely, I think this is a, probably a blind spot for most of us, that we don't even realize we're fearful about reproach. But if the Spirit's working, again, I, this, is, this shouldn't feel you, make you feel condemned. It shouldn't put you down in a hole. You've been forgiven. But we don't use that forgiveness to, to not repent, <laughs> to confess our sins because we've been given this grace of forgiveness and we repent and we move toward faith instead of dwelling in fear of reproach. So with that in mind, let's, let's, let's repent, let's confess, let's receive this, this reminder of this good gift that was so costly to Jesus and given to us so that we could be brought on the inside. We could know God and know one another. God, thank you for this, this text, this word. It, it is, I, I'm sure it was a, a challenging word for those original hearers who felt so weary from having to bear reproach from those closest to them. And yet, I know there are weary hearts in the room that have the same feeling that feel weary under the reproach or the potential reproach of family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, others. And so, Lord, we've allowed that to shut us up. And we confess that, myself included, Lord. I'm confessing that. And I'm so grateful for the forgiveness you've given me for that sin and all my other ones, Lord. God, may, may this gospel shape me and make me someone new, someone different than I was yesterday. And I pray the same for each in this room. God, would you take those gospel believers in this room and would you not only remind them of their salvation, but shape them by this gospel, that they'd be a different man, different woman than the man or woman they were when they walked in this door. God, I can't do that but you can. So Lord, take the truth of your word and shape the hearts and lives of those in the room. And Lord, for those who have yet to receive that gift of grace, God, give them eyes to see it and the courage to receive it and welcome them home today, God. Thank you for this table that reminds us of these truths every week. Lord, would you bless the bread and the cup in our time as we commune with you and one another. Thank you that we don't have to sacrifice every year so that we can enjoy full acceptance for one day of atonement, but every day is a day of atonement for us, Lord. 
We get to enjoy your acceptance because there's been a once-for-all sacrifice made for us, God. Thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.